I want to welcome up uh, Frank Romano to the stage to share his story. And uh, by the way, you're going to want to talk more to Frank afterwards. There, he, he's got to really sum it up. Um, but one thing I want to let you know about who Frank is. Frank's been in the background of this service since the very beginning. And most people don't, don't know that. Him and his wife, Eileen, um, have been at the very beginning prayer meetings that we had. Uh, uh, actually, before we were even meeting at my house, uh, Eileen and Frank were praying with Nick and myself and Corey uh, in launching the service. And, and uh, Eileen has uh, uh, gotten cancer in the last few months. And Well, it's been about six months, right? Uh, uh, Longer now, about three years. Oh well, yeah, but yeah. she was in remission for right, time. right. Yeah. She it came back in uh, August. I so, think she got really bad. So Eileen is um, she's been fighting that battle, and uh, I'd encourage you to pray for her. Keep mm-hmm. remember her in your prayers as they go through it, and then Frank will share more about that going on. But but I'm so excited to have him here tonight with us, and so he'll be sharing with you. It's all okay. yours. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, Dave asked me to keep it short. <laughs> and Eileen said, Eileen encouraged me, you better listen to him. So, okay. Uh, yeah, I watched a movie, I went to Alaska, and I got saved. Praise God. Is that short enough? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was Eileen's idea. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I want to read this first part because I make sure I want to get it, get it right. And uh, the rest of it uh, I have pretty much by heart because it was such a transforming experience. But uh, when asked to give my testimony, uh, my first thought was how I came to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But then I quickly realized that even though it was such a momentous occasion, it was only the beginning of a great adventure. In order to testify you have to have a first-hand account of something you've seen, heard, or experienced. I have seen God's work in my life. I have heard the Lord's voice, both his still and small voice and his voice through his written word. And I have experienced the goodness that flows from his hands, his unfailing love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his peace in times of trouble, and his patience with me. So I just wanted to get that part straight. Uh, Back in the 70s, that's when I was in high school, uh, I had a couple of buddies and we went out and watched a movie. And the movie, some of you people my age would know it, uh, Jeremiah Johnson with Robert Redford. Uh, The story was about this mountain guy Well, actually, he was from the east, and he decided he wanted to live a solitary life. So he went out west. You know, it was the Wild West back then. He went out west and decided to get all the equipment he thought he would need to make it in the wild as a trapper and, you know, live this solitary life. And he had a whole bunch of adventures along the way uh, that really had an impact on his life. Well, when we got through watching the movie... The three of us looked at each other and said, you know, that would be really cool to be, be a mountain man. And the two, my two friends were brothers, and uh, the older brother, he said, uh, he goes, you know, they're still, they're, the government's still giving away land up in Alaska. 
you could, we could go up there and we could homestead 160 acres in Alaska. At that time, you could do that. All you had to do was go, you had to uh, find the 160 acres, you had to clear 20 acres, live on it for seven months out of the year, for seven years, and then the government gave you a deed to it. So that sounded really cool, you know. I, I'm, I was 19 years old, the other guy, uh, the younger brother I think was 18 and the older brother was 20 or 21. And so we thought, that, that's outstanding. So we sold everything we had. We told all our friends, we're going to become mountain men. We're going to Alaska. And we bought a Dodge van. We bought all the stuff that we thought we would need to make a go at it, you know. We thought we bought stuff to make soap. We bought, you know, flour, sugar, all the supplies we thought we would need, canned supplies. Uh, we even bought black powder and a black powder revolver, and we even bought a 50 caliber Hawk and rifle like was in the movie. <laughs> I mean, I mean we, we were going to do it upright. So we get all this stuff, we throw it in a van, and we head off to Alaska. Well, it's a you know, few thousand miles to Alaska. Took us two weeks to make the trip up there. And back then, you had to go up into Canada to a place called Prince George, and from Prince George all the way to the Alaskan border was Graveled Road. And it was pretty, considered a pretty grueling highway to uh, travel at that time because of the gravel. Well, we're on our way up there. We stopped in Vancouver, bought a canoe because we thought we could use a canoe too, you know. Hey, there's no roads, you know, out in the wilderness, just rivers and lakes. So we bought a canoe, we bought a couple life jackets, and uh, when we were in Canada, on our way to Prince George, we met uh, a couple of guys returning from Alaska. They were older guys. By old, I mean they were probably in their 30s and 40s at the time. You know, we, I was just a kid. And uh, they were telling us all about Alaska and stuff, and, we, and, and uh, they said, you know, there's a shortcut that cuts off uh, a couple hundred miles off the Alcan Highway. And uh, they told us how to take this shortcut. You take this paved road up to New Hazleton, and then from New Hazleton, it's a logging road all the way up way north into Canada to a place called White, White Horse at the north end of this 90-mile-long lake. And so we thought, oh, that's cool, you know, that's what we'll do. So we're driving along on this highway to New Hazleton and, you know, in our Dodge van with a canoe on top. And uh, all of a sudden, this river comes into view. And it's a pretty big river. I mean, it's pretty wide. And it's flowing okay. And we pull out the map and we look at the map and, you know, here's the blue thread of the river. And we notice that the road crosses the river up at New Hazleton. So Sammy, the younger brother, and I, we got the idea, hey, let's get the canoe, we'll get in the river, we'll float down the river, and then, you know, Eddie can pick us up where the river crosses. So, you know, here's a couple of kids who, you know, the only canoe experience Sammy and I ever had was in the Boy Scouts, you know, and that was in a lake, you know. So we're, we decide, okay, this is what we're going to do. So we get in the river, Eddie takes off, pretty soon we lose sight of the road because it goes somewhere else. And we're in this river and, you know, we're just having a nice time floating along. The current's taking us so we don't have to do much paddling. And then all of a sudden we see the sides are starting to become steeper. And we're thinking, wow, you know, uh, 
and the, and the water's, you know, the river's getting a little narrower, and the water's starting to move a little bit faster, and then we come across this bridge that's not too high off the road, I mean off the river, and uh, it's a bridge over a logging road, so we pull over there, and we debate, okay, do we go on or not? And we decide, uh, we didn't really want to carry that canoe all the way back to the Babes Road, because <laughs> at that point we had no idea how far it was. So we go, okay, we're gonna tough it out. We'll get back in the river and tough it out. So we get back in the river. Right around the very next bend, another river, the same size as the one we were in, joined ours. And the sides became even more steeper. And then up ahead, we saw all this white in the water. And we're thinking, oh no, you know. So we brace ourselves. We make it through the first rapid, which was probably a, a rated one, you know, the first rapid. We make it through that one. The second rapid, we capsized the canoe. Now, we had a canoe with flotation devices in it. That was a selling point for this canoe. And it, you could, the salesman said you could turn it over after it capsized, and you could get in it full of water and still navigate it. Well, after going through that second rapid and seeing what was farther down, I'm like, no way I'm getting back in that canoe. I'm swimming for it. And I yelled to Sammy and said, I'm swimming for it, and I took off. And I got pulled under, and the power of water, I don't know how many of you have ever been you know, in rapids, or I know a lot of you have been in waves, how waves can overpower you. But in rapids in a river, it is just totally overpowering. You have no control whatsoever. You're like a rag doll, just, just getting tossed everywhere. And that's what I felt like. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, every once in a while, the jacket would pull me back up so I could gasp for some air. And then I felt myself going face, you know, feet first, face over this rock. And, and I grabbed on, and I pulled myself up on this rock. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm out of the river, you know, I'm finally out of the river. And I get up on the rock, and I'm on this big rock right in the middle of the river. And I'm thinking, oh, no. The first thought that came to my mind was a Reader's Digest story that I read right before we left about a kid who got caught in a river with the water rising and no way off the rock. <laughs> well, he got, he got rescued by a helicopter, and I thought, fat chance. I'm not, there's not going to be any helicopter coming after me because they have no idea where I'm at. You know? So I'm sitting on this river. Finally, you know, I, I don't know, it seemed like an eternity trying to figure out what to do, because as far as I know, Sammy's gone, the, the, river, the uh, canoe's gone. I don't want to get back in the water. No way. I mean, I just got out. I don't want to go back in. And uh, downriver, everything just looked even worse than where I was at. And so I'm standing there for what seemed like an eternity, and then all of a sudden, I see this, this yellow bobbin down river, and it looks like it was coming up the shore. And as it got closer, I noticed that it was Sammy with his life vest on. And he got opposite to me, and we're yelling back and forth. It's probably from here to the back wall. Uh, that's how far it was, the river. And uh, that's just one side. The other side, same distance. And we're yelling back and forth, trying to figure out what to do, because you know, I, I didn't want to get back in the water. And so we finally came up with this plan. There was this huge log that was jammed against the rock I was on, and one end was in the, in the water, and the other end was sticking up. 
So we came up with this plan that Sammy would stand downriver and hold a lodge pole, you know, as far out into the river as he could. I would run out on this log, you know, to get some momentum and jump as far as I could to get as close to the other bank as I could. And then hopefully I could grab a pole as I went by. You know, I mean, that was our plan. So it sounded good, except for the fact that I had to get back in the water. So I get on the, I get on the, the log, and I'm getting ready to go, and I start to run up the log, and the end of the log is all moss-covered, you know, from the spray of the water and stuff. And so I slipped and fell right in. But God had other plans. I, he put me right in a current that took me directly to Sammy's feet. And Sammy just dropped the pole, grabbed my life jacket, and yanked me out of the water. And then, of course, we were out of, we were out of the water, but we weren't out of the woods. We were still you know, deep in the Canadian wilderness. And so we had to hike this, climb up this real steep vertical slope, you know, grabbing on the bushes and stuff. And we finally get up to a level spot, and we step out of the, the woods into a clearing, and it's a train track. So we figured, hey, the train's going to go to New Hazleton. So we just started walking the tracks. Pretty soon, a train came by. And so we stepped off the tracks to let it go by, and they stopped. And up there, I guess they stopped for anybody on the tracks. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, that's their... Well, may, maybe they stopped because, you know, it's not often they saw two city slickers in life vests soaking wet standing on the side of the train in the Canadian wilderness. But uh, whatever the reason, they did stop. We got to ride in the back of the caboose because it was a freight train, and those things are like ap apartments. They're really nice. Uh, they got a wood stove in them, or at least ours did. He fed us sandwiches. We got all dried out and everything. And the conductor, he said, you guys are really fortunate to get out of that river where you did. He said, there have been people, world-class guys from all over the world who've tried to successfully navigate that river in a canoe or kayak or whatever, and nobody's ever made it down that river. And we saw why later on, because the train came up along one of the banks of the river, which the bank was a vertical cliff. And you could see the opposite side was a vertical cliff. And down below was just all these huge boulders and the water just swirling and tumbling and just going every which direction. And so we were very fortunate to get out. God definitely had his hand on me at that point. I didn't know him at that point, but he had a bigger plan for me. And of course, the other brother, when he got to New Hazleton, he was freaking out. And the reason why he was freaking out was where the road crossed the river was a thousand foot high bridge. <laughs> so. He contacted the Mounties, and the Mounties said, hey, there's nothing we can do. You know, all you can do is pray that they have enough sense to get out in time. So anyway, we touched back, we got, got back in touch with Eddie. We got on the road again, had a whole bunch more adventures before we got to Alaska. And, uh, but we finally did get to Alaska. And uh, when we got in the two weeks that it took us to get up there, they closed the Homestead Act down. You know, so we're like, we're like, oh, man, you know, we told all our friends, do or die, you know. 
you can't go back home. I mean, that would, you know, that'd be like eating crow, you know. So we, we thought, what are we going to do, you know. Well, we did want to see Mount McKinley, so we bought a train ticket, went 250 miles or 150 miles, I think, out to Mount McKinley from Anchorage. And we camped in a tent out there. There was just a train platform. They drop you off. You go over to the park station. They had, I think, a couple of buses that would take you anywhere in the park and drop you off. And then, you know, they ran regularly, so you just come back to the road and they'd pick you up and bring you back. We went way into the interior and uh, pitched our tent, and it rained on us for three days. Three guys, three days in a three-man tent. It was not pleasant. And, and by the end, we finally decided on the only sensible thing that we could at that point, and that was, we'll go back to Anchorage, and we'll join the Army. <laughs> so, and it probably was the only sensible thing. So anyway, we, we decided that, that was our decision. We packed everything up. We went back to the platform. And we're sitting on the train platform. We're the only ones out there. We're sitting on three guys on this platform waiting for the train to come by. And out of the woods, this guy walks up. And he's about our age, you know, 19 or 20. And he's got this, this embroidery on his uh, shirt. And it had a, a cloud and a rainbow. And in the cloud was the name Jesus. And he come walking up and he started talking to us about Jesus. You know, about how we could have this personal relationship with him. And, you know, I was raised Catholic. I came from Southern California when the Jesus movement was really starting to take off. But nobody had ever approached me before about this. So I knew who Jesus was. But what really intrigued me was the fact that I could have a personal relationship with him. I could know him personally, you know, not through the priest. So the train came up, he gave, offered a pocket testament, and I took it. 150 miles away, back in Anchorage, the very next day, I'm down at this little park by the inlet, and I'm standing against the fence, and I'm reading that pocket testament, and another guy comes walking up to me and starts telling me the same stuff, you know, how I can have this relationship with Jesus, you know, and I'm, and I'm listening to him, he invites me over to his apartment where his him and his brother lived, and, and, you know, we talked for a long time, and finally I said, you know, i got to get back to my friends. Oh, they can, you know, stay with us. No, no, you know, I wasn't ready to commit to anything at that point. And I go, no, i got to get back to them. And at that time, we were sleeping on the sidewalk in front of the train station. A lot of backpackers did it back then. So anyway, we get the very next day. So the first guy was the one who planted the seed. Somebody totally different was watering it. The very next day, we're downtown Anchorage, and I'm reading out of the pocket testament, walking along with Sammy, and uh, I came to this, this passage in Revelation, and I couldn't understand what it was saying at all. And I turned to Sammy, and I read it to him, and I said, you, you understand what that's saying? He goes, don't have a clue. And I looked up, and here's this brand new sign that said C Street Christian Center. And I thought, well, somebody in there should know, you know, so... I mean, I hadn't that much sense. So I walked, I walked in. Just as we walked in, the pastor and the evangelist were walking out. And in 15 minutes, they had us on our knees accepting the Lord. And that night, they took us to the mother church. Turned out, this, they hadn't even opened this Christian center yet. They were still working on the inside of it. And uh, 
They took us to the mother church that night, and we were water baptized that night. And uh, and the very next day, you know, I had already we had already signed up for the army that morning. So, you know, the very next day, I was at the Christian Center, and I noticed they had all these tracks and stuff, you know, but I didn't know what they were. I had no idea what they were. They were in this rack, and there were a whole bunch of them. And I thought, wow, these are cool, you know, because they talked about Jesus and and what I just experienced. So I grabbed a bunch of them, went downtown Anchorage on 4th Street, you know, long hair, bib overalls, stopping everybody that was walked by, telling them what happened, what had just happened to me, you know, because I was so excited. And just trying to tell them, you know, you gotta, you gotta meet Jesus, you gotta meet him. And so, like I said, I had already signed up for the army. Three days later, I was in the army and off to boot camp in Fort Dix, New Jersey. I had no route, you know, I hadn't really been watered that much, so I backslid, you know, but I had no foundation. I was backslidden for eight months, totally miserable, totally. And, and you know, I had already tasted of the goodness of the Lord. So it was, I started smoking again, it got to the point where I hated myself for it, you know, towards the end of the month when I ran out of money, I'd be picking up butts out of the gutter and ashtrays and smoking those, you know. I was just disgusted with myself. And one night, this went on for about eight months, one night I went over to Sammy's uh, barracks and he was all dressed up. And I said, Sammy, where are you going? And he goes, I'm going to church. You want to come? I thought for a second. I said, yeah, I'll go. So I went and got dressed up. We went to church. And at the time, the mother church was about this size, but they were like packed every night. And uh, that night, when we were at church, this woman stood up and she said, I had a vision. She said, I saw a package of cigarettes being crushed and a pair of lungs being purified. And there's somebody here who's been trying to quit smoking and God wants to deliver them from it if they'll just come forward and have the elders pray for him. So I immediately jumped up, you know, ran down to the front. The elders laid their hands on me. They prayed for me. It was like the urge, the desire, everything was gone. And, and the proof of that was when I went back to, to the base, my roommate was a heavy smoker just like I was. Our room was always full of smoke. When I got back to our room, it was like I had never smoked before. I opened the door and I was, you know, repulsed, you know, like when you walk in the smoke-filled room. I was repulsed. And to top it off, we used to do five-mile runs every morning. We'd get up at 5.30 in the dark, run five miles. After the first mile or two, my chest always hurt. I would get this pain across my chest every time, every day, after the first or second mile. It was like that. That next day, after they had prayed for me, there was no pain at all, and I never got any pain after that when I ran. So God took me to Alaska to introduce himself to me. I, I don't know why he couldn't have done it in Southern California, but, but that was the way he chose to do it. And so in conclusion, you know, I, wanna, I want to... Uh, Read this one passage out of Psalms that really kind of sums up my life because my testimony, you know, that's just such a small part of my testimony. My testimony is, you know, the, gosh, 
how many years has it been now? Almost 40, more than 40 years of walking with the Lord. That's my real testimony. All the things that he's done since then. All the trials I've been through. You know, the trials my wife has been through, my kids, all that stuff. And yet, every single day, God is faithful. And so this verse sums it all up. It says, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. I found, it true, I found that to be true in my life. God is stronger than anything that I've ever faced, and he is a loving and compassionate father. That's what I found God to be in my life. So thank you for listening. Thanks, Frank. Hold on, Frank. I just want to thank you so much for sharing, and I want to pray for you before you go and for Eileen. Um, so if you'll pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for just saving Frank in the way that you did, Lord, that he's so faithful to be willing to testify of your goodness and your greatness, God. And Lord, we want to pray for both Eileen and Frank that you'd be merciful to them, Lord. Yes. God, that you'd graciously heal Eileen. Mm. Father, we ask this by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for their faithfulness and steadfastness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Frank. Thanks. <laughs> I love that. The only sensible thing to do is join the army. <laughs> so, oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well, tonight we are going to be in Mark chapter 9. But before we do that, I want to read a passage out of Second Peter. And let me uh, open up my Bible here. We're going to be in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Verse uh, 16? Yeah, 16. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Oh, it's already up there. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Um, let's go ahead and turn back over to Mark chapter 9. In verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word, God, and we thank you that it reveals to us our Savior, King, Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord God, we pray that you now open up your word to us, help, it to, help us to apply it in our lives, and Lord, to be transformed into your likeness. We thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Palm Sunday, of course, this text is uh, about uh, a few months prior to Palm Sunday. In fact, we believe that this is actually happening, this transfiguration moment is happening in the month of Tishri, which is close to our October. It's around our October. And it was actually during the feast, uh, in, in the month of Tishri, there's a feast that Israel celebrates, and it's the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Tents, however you want to uh, translate that. And what the feast was meant to do, it was meant to look backwards and also forward, backwards to God's provision while Israel was in the wilderness. So Israelites would come from all over, wherever they were at, in their homes, and still to this day, Orthodox Jews celebrate this. They move out of the house and into the backyard, or they, they, they move outside and they live in a tent for this period of time to recognize that God provided for Israel in the wilderness, and then of course in the future sense, God will provide us His kingdom. And so that's what the Feast of Booths is all about. Now, from this point, we've turned in Mark, and we are headed towards Jerusalem. Jesus goes up on this mountain with James and John and Peter. And from this mountain, this northernmost point in Israel, Mount Hermon, he's going to head down this mountain and towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. That's where we're headed in Mark. And so here we have... um, just after, after Jesus had taught us that uh, if we're going to follow him, we need to not deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him daily. We're about six days later, and Jesus takes him up on this mountain. Now, the Israelites were expecting King Messiah to come in and kick out the Romans. We've talked about this already, these political tensions and why Jesus kept saying, hey, keep this to yourselves. Don't talk about this with others. Because Jesus was going to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the king that we needed, not the king that the Jews wanted. He will come in that conquering way, but for now, he was coming to die. And in fact, every time Jesus talks about his death from this point on, which we saw last week where he started to talk about his death, we're going to see it goes over the disciples' heads. First it was Peter trying to say, no, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. And remember that harsh rebuke last week, get behind me, Satan. Do not thwart the plan of God. We're going to see the disciples struggling with this all the way to Calvary. The whole time, they're going to be struggling with this idea of their Messiah dying. And in fact, all of Israel is too. We, we read in the, in the account of Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into the city, they were saying, Hosanna in the highest. And everybody came out and they were celebrating Jesus. Hosanna in the highest. He's, he's coming in. We're, we're going from Bethany down through the valley there up into Jerusalem. This is the moment. This is the time that he's going to kick Pilate and the rest of the Romans out of here. And he's going to establish Messiah's kingdom. Hosanna, the Lord saves in the highest. 
He's the one. But Jesus didn't do what they thought he was going to do. Jesus didn't go straight to the praetorium to speak to Pilate. Jesus went straight to the temple. The most important, the most valuable thing in the Jewish worship, the only way that the Jews could connect with God was through that temple. And Jesus went into that temple and he overthrew the tables and he called them a den of thieves and liars. And he rebuked them and said, this house will be a house of prayer. Man, talk about a controversial Messiah. We just called you son of David. We just said Hosanna in the highest. And you didn't attack the Romans. You attacked our worship. And remember, Jesus goes in, he turns over the tables, rebukes them for the way they're conducting worship. And we'll get to that eventually in Mark's gospel. But he goes back out to Bethany. And that's why two days later we find the mob saying, crucify him. And all jumping on board with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest. Crucify him. He's not the one we want. He's, the, uh, he's another one. Not the one we want. And we're going to see that today as Jesus reveals himself on this mountain. And we read that first passage in Peter just to show that Peter gives his account later on when he writes his epistle, his letter, he gives this account of, hey, this was revealed to us. Remember, in this passage, Jesus says, don't talk about this right now. Save it for later. But the first verse of this passage says, there are some here, standing here, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this verse is, is a little bit of a, well, what does this mean? Is someone going to live forever? What's going to happen? And I really believe that this verse, Mark puts it here because he wants us to understand that this is speaking about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. That, that James, John, and Peter are those some here who will see the kingdom of God and its power. And so Mark puts it there, and then he says after six days, Luke says about eight days later, and I really believe Luke is probably, they, I think James, John, and Peter were gone with Jesus up on that mountain for a couple days. It was the highest mountain, northernmost mountain. There was snow on it a lot of the year. Of course, this is early fall, so, so probably not snow yet. And, uh, and by the way, if you look this up, older resources will talk about Mount Tabor, but that's a little bit south, further south. Mount Hermon is the one that's closer to the region where they're out in Caesarea Philippi, up in the very northernmost part of Israel. And it's the farthest place that Joshua conquered, by the way. So, so Jesus goes up on this mountain with them, and we don't really get a time frame here, but we just know that Mark says after six days. So Jesus took with him Peter, James, John, let, and led them up this high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. This word, transfigure, is metamorpho, metamorpho. Do you hear that word that we get from the English? Metamorpho, metamorphosis, right? That's the word we get um, in the English from this. And this word is used a couple times in the New Testament. It's used in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, right? Be transformed. And so, so now in Romans 12, 2, though, it's talking about a spiritual transformation. Something that's not is becoming, 
Okay, and we, we kind of think of a, a butterfly, a caterpillar making a cocoon and changing from one thing to another. Okay, and that's the metamorphosis that is taking place with this caterpillar as it changes into a butterfly. Now, spiritually speaking, us Christians, that's what's happening to us. We have a change happening in us. We are being transformed more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Praise God for that. Because I'll tell you right now, the person I was when I met Christ is a totally person, different person today. And I hope by the time I go home to be with the Lord, I'll be a totally different person by then. God is ironing out. He's changing me. And praise God we have promises like Philippians 1.6 that says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it to the day of completion. Jesus Christ started a work in you, and you know what, Christian? You're not perfect. Get over it. You're going to screw up. John even told us that when we studied through 1 John, is that, hey, anyone who says they don't sin is a liar. Here's what you do with sin. You go confess it. You repent of that sin, you confess it to the Lord, and the Lord does something absolutely amazing with it. He casts it away. He removes the sin from us. It's an awesome thing that God does for us. So we're not going to be perfect. Just recognize that. But God is doing this work in us. And I've heard it said in the past that Christians should wear around a sign that says, under construction, you know. It's like, <laughs> this is not the finished product, everybody. Trust me, it's getting better. But just recognize that you are under construction, but you need to let the Lord continue doing the work in your life. Don't settle for good enough. Don't settle for good enough. You know, every home improvement project I do around my house, I usually end up having to settle at some point for good enough. You know, like, and the worst part about doing a home improvement project is you see every mess up in detail because you're looking at it so close. But there's some point at which I go, oh, I just have no more time to do this. Now I've got to move to this project. So there's some settling for good enough. Well, listen, there's no way I'm going to settle for good enough in this life. I want Jesus to make me into his image, which means I'll be continually submitting to him. And so, but going back to this word metamorpho, the King James translators chose to use the word transfigured, not transformed. And most of our English Bibles to this date still use that word transfigured because we're talking about something a little bit different here. The disciples didn't get a picture of who Jesus is going to be. They got a picture of who Jesus is. And notice this. This picture has no bearing on what the disciples think about Jesus. So it's not like, well, I don't believe in Jesus. I believe in science. Or, well, I don't believe in Jesus, so therefore he doesn't exist. No, it's not like that. Jesus is king. He is Lord. The question is whether or not you will submit your life to him. That's what the question is. So Jesus is merely showing to the disciples his radiant glory. The glory that he left, that he allowed to become in, uh, uh, incarnate in man form. That all that glory he still retains. He just wasn't showing it. He looked like a man. And so as the, the disciples see this transfiguration... They see that he becomes radiant, intensely white. And the, the, our translators say, like, no one could bleach them. And, and it's really like uh, no one could make them whiter. This is like, as white as it gets. This is as pure as it gets. 
that what they're seeing. Now, going back to this idea of transfigured, when Jesus is showing his glory, notice there's a difference between Moses. Remember Moses came down off the mountain from being with the Lord, and he, he was radiant, the Bible says. He was radiant. He had changed in appearance. But Moses was different than Jesus because Moses was merely reflecting the glory of God. You and I get the opportunity to reflect the glory of God, but that glory is not our own. That glory is God's. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. This glory is his own. He is God. And so here we see uh, this, uh, this wonderful event happening, and there appear Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law, both who are called prophets in the Old Testament. And they're talking with Jesus. Now, none of the Gospels give us what the conversation was. But, man, what I've loved it. What are they talking about? You know, Moses and Elijah show up. And, and for Peter and, the rest, and James and John, you got, this is a jaw-dropping moment. Why? <laughs> what? Because it's like you and I hearing that, oh, hey, I just saw Moses and Elijah. I've learned about them in Sunday school. I know all about these guys. These guys are heroes of the faith. And now I'm seeing them. On this mountain, hanging out with Jesus. <coughs> and so Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is good. <laughs> Just so you all know. <laughs> this is good. Peter, obviously... <laughs> The impetuous one, the one who's always ready to speak out a little too soon, says, it's good that we're here. Tell you what, let's make three tents, three tabernacles, three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, I can identify a lot with Peter. Given a response where I don't know what to say, I just start talking. And whatever I say, it's just a foot in my mouth. It's just like, really, Dave? <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, that wasn't well thought out, those words. That I, so I identify extremely well with Peter. And I'm sure I would, given the same situation, I'm up there, I would say, hey, this is awesome. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> we should do something special. And really what Peter is saying is, let's just dwell here. Let's hang out here. I'm not ready to leave this place. But the problem is, as Peter says, let's make these tabernacles for all three of you. And Jesus is not sharing his glory with anyone. And so, um, the, this, and then all of a sudden we see that, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is mirroring what happened in the Exodus account. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, in the Exodus account, we know that God spoke to Israel through the cloud. Here on this mountain, God speaks again to James, John, and Peter, affirming to these three, this is my son, listen to him. If you know the son, you know the father. It's amazing. Jesus told us that over and over that, hey, anyone who wants to know my father needs to know me. If you know the son, you know the father. If you don't know the son, you don't know the father. If you want to know God and be in relationship with God, you've got to know Jesus Christ. 
And you know, the, the sad part is, is many people are religious today. Many people are spiritual. Many people want to, to, to take part in some religious element. But they want nothing to do with the Son, Jesus Christ. They want to, oh, I believe in God. What does I believe in God mean? Well, you know, there's a God out there. But they don't know the Son. And if they merely take the time to know the Son, they will know the Father because Jesus Christ came to reveal God to us. He is the revelation God has given to us in these last days. That's what the Scriptures tell us. And so this voice comes out, and, and notice it says, listen to Him. By the way, in Scripture, anytime we have listen, it's not saying just like hear the words, hear the noise. It's not listen like that. It's obedience. Nowhere in Scripture does it say listen without obedience. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And verse 22. James says this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so we want to be doers of the word, not just hearers deceiving ourselves. To say that, oh, I'm listening but not actually doing, the Bible says you are deceiving yourself. If you hear God speak, you've got to turn into a doer of what you hear. That's part of faith. Faith is hearing God speak and responding to Him with actions of obedience and attitudes of dependence. That's what we want to do. We want to, be, we want to listen to Him because He is God's Son. He is the one whom God is pleased in. And we will please God if we listen to Him and become doers of the Word. So God gives us command, listen to Him. And uh, then, then we see, the, and suddenly look around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, let me just take a moment for Moses, talk about Moses and Elijah, because this is a little bit of a puzzling thing. Why Moses and Elijah? Uh, well, there's a couple unique things about Moses and Elijah. First of all, Moses and Elijah had both very unique deaths. Elijah, we don't ever read about that he died. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. Talk about a cool event. Elisha was there watching, and, and Elijah comes by, throws a mantle on Elijah saying, hey, you're the new prophet now. I'm out of here. <laughs> chariot comes down. I, I, by the way, I, I, how come we don't retire ministers that way anymore? Like, Woo, I'm out of here, <laughs> you know, and then we'll fire, you know. Anyway, the chariot comes down, picks up Elijah, he's gone. Where'd Elijah go? <laughs> he went up to heaven, right? And then Moses dies, and we know that Moses dies, and they put him in an unmarked grave. But later on in the book of Jude, right before Revelation, Jude reveals something to us that is very like, what is this all about? We don't know. We, and, and honestly, we're kind of left with like, why did he tell us that and not give us more information? But Jude says that even while Michael, the archangel, disputed with Satan over the body of Moses, he did not bring a slanderous accusation but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude tells us that 
there was this dispute between Satan and Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. And we're like, a little more context here. Like, why? What is going on? Why are they warring over a body? But Jude's not talking to us about that. He's trying to tell us that we shouldn't slander heavenly beings that we don't know anything about. And so he goes on with, with, don't bring a slanderous accusation. Just say the Lord rebuke you. You trust in the Lord's strength. But so there's this weird thing surrounding the death of both these two men. But we also know that later on, if you'll turn with me over to the book of Revelation, go to Revelation chapter 11. <clears throat> now, I want to I just pause for a moment and say this, that this is conjecture on my part. This is not, this, I, I'm, I am saying that there is a relation here, but I'm not saying that this is how it will happen. So in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 6, uh, actually, sorry, verse 4, says, and, and but let me pause before I set this up, before we start reading. We're talking during the Great Tribulation period, okay? Also known as the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament, okay? Now, the Day of the Lord or the Tribulation period is to judge the earth and to bring back Israel, okay? We know that Israel has been blinded. We know that the natural branches have been cut off. And the, the unnatural branch, the wild olive shoot, that's you and me, church, the Gentiles, we've been grafted in. And then there will be a time where Israel is grafted back into that original olive tree. And now I'm using these terms from Romans chapter, chapters 9 through 12. And, and so during this tribulation period, Israel will be coming back to the Lord. Okay? Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, speaking of these two prophets, that, you know what? I, I actually started too early or too late. Um, if you back up just uh, one more verse to verse 3. And I will grant them authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So first thing God tells us is that in this revelation is that these prophets are going to be given authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, three and a half years. And while they're prophesying, there, there are these lampstands that are testimony of the Lord. But if anyone comes to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Now, I'm sure that's not a literal fire coming from your mouth, but, I mean, you have to make a bad breath joke here. Uh. Right? My wife tells me after the services, because when, when I talk, I get bad breath and stuff. And I, I, by the way, most of the time I'm drinking water up here, not coffee. But um, my wife will come up to me, and she's a good wife. She comes up to me and hands me a piece of gum or a mint. Like, before you talk to people, please. <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> anyway. So I apologize. And by the way, when you come up real close to me after a service, if I don't have a mint or anything, there's a reason why I kind of I do this. Not because of you. It's because I'm afraid I have bad breath. So... Anyway, so this, these guys will breathe out fire and they'll consume their foes. Now listen, verse 6, they have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Okay, Elijah shut up the heavens. He shut off rain from Israel for three and a half years. 
when you read back to that. Now look, look at what else they have the power to do. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Sound like Moses? So, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where the Lord was crucified. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. You can go back to Mark. But I, I do think that there's something to be said for why Moses and Elijah showed up in the mountain of transfiguration. Israel's been expecting Elijah, and they keep asking about Elijah. But they, don't, they miss the point that John the Baptist was the Elijah that Malachi prophesied about. And we've, we've talked about that in the past. But there's something special about these two prophets. And it very may well be that Moses and Elijah do show up during the tribulation period as a testimony to Israel to turn back to the Lord. But we'll see how these things work out. Going on, chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciple, oh, I'm sorry, I've, I've skipped chapter 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. See, there it is. The disciples are totally clueless to the idea of Messiah dying and raising from the dead. Every time Jesus talks about his death, they're just like, well, let's just not talk about that right now. Let's talk about something else. They just don't want to believe it, and they especially don't understand the rising from the dead part. In fact, we read later in the Gospels that when he talked about rising from the dead, they didn't think it meant three days later. They thought it meant at the end of time. So they were as caught off guard by his resurrection as, as everybody else was. So they, uh, <clears throat> verse 11, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that, of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. And so still we have the disciples kind of clueless here. Like, hey, wait, isn't Elijah going to come still? No, Elijah has come. It was John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they pleased. They, they, they have trouble drawing that line between Malachi and Elijah himself. And notice what it says about Jesus and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Here Jesus is telling the disciples, this is what you should expect. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, if you read those two prophecies, and by the way, Isaiah, uh, just a, a note as far as uh, defending your faith, Isaiah was written um, sometime around 650 B.C., okay? It's, it's an old book. The, oldest, the earliest version we have dates back to after or before 200 B.C., that's the version, the great Isaiah scroll we found in the Dead Seas, the Qumran Cave 1 uh, in 1948. Now that scroll is in beautiful condition. And that scroll, when they compared to the, the, the most recent we, copy we had from about 1,000, was almost identical. The things that were out of place were, were generally just little pieces that don't have anything to do with content but with grammar and punctuation. And that Isaiah scroll prophesies about Messiah, Jesus Christ, being crucified, being rejected by men, and suffering at the hands of people. So remember last week I said, 
everyone needs to answer, who is Jesus Christ? Because there's too many awesome things surrounding him for us to ignore the evidence that Jesus Christ is the Savior of this world. And so in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, if you read those, those are wonderful prophecies about Messiah. But those prophecies of the Christ, Messiah, or Jesus, have to do with his suffering. In fact, when you read Psalm 22, it's an exact picture of the cross of Calvary. In fact, Jesus throws the disciples and all of Israel a bone on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all he was doing is saying, hey guys, go read Psalm 22. Does this look familiar? That's what he was doing. So Jesus, um, Jesus lets the disciples know that Elijah has come. And Elijah would restore all things. What, how, what does that mean? Well, it means that Elijah is announcing the restoration. The restoration of what? The restoration of you and me. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You and I ate that, uh, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that they weren't supposed to. They sinned against God. And ever since then, the world, mankind, has been suffering from sin. The restoration, that's you and me being reconciled to God. Having relationship with God. So verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? O how, I lo- how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked, him, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Verse 22. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I just want to make a note on that last part. Uh, New New King James, uh, King James says, But by prayer and fasting. And the earliest manuscripts we have of the Greek New Testament don't have in fasting. And uh, what I want to just share with you is, when we have, uh, when there's a discrepancy in manuscripts, and you can talk to me about this later, um, 
but we have over 5,000 early New Testament manuscripts. So there's not um, a lack of New Testament evidence. There's actually an embarrassment of New, T- New Testament evidence. And when you add in all the translations and, and some of the later manuscripts, we're up around 25,000. And they're still finding manuscripts to this day. Um, but with that said, usually what, what uh, the textual critics do and it's a science, but they say usually the harder or the simplest reading is the more accurate reading, okay? And so that's why they, they when they found these earlier manuscripts, and by the way, a lot of Greek manuscripts have and fasting, but they say, well, you know, this the and fasting part may go along with the asceticism idea that was setting in within the church, and so maybe, maybe a scribe kind of threw that and fasting in, uh, and so that's why the newer translations don't have in fasting. Um, but, but the whole point of this story is not about whether it's by prayer or by fasting. The point is it's about reliance upon God and his power, not on ourselves. And so the disciples learned this. Notice this prayer that this man gives. Jesus, he sees this argument, and he sees that the disciples were not able to, and they're arguing over it. You know, that's what, that's, the disciples came up and they're like, we got this covered. Come on out. No, John, you did it wrong. It's like, get out of there. You know, you know, no, John, Peter, you don't know what you're doing. Bartholomew, you try. <laughs> get, come on, get out, get out, get out. You know, whatever the case is, they weren't doing it right. And now they're arguing about it. And, um, and Jesus comes up and notice his challenge, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Now, it sounds like Jesus is like, you guys all stink. You know, and that's not really what he's saying. He's showing them where, where their failure is at. Anytime we have a spiritual failing, I'll tell you right now, it's a lack of faith. Spiritual failings are always a lack of faith. And when I say a lack of faith, I'm not saying it's a lack of hoping real hard, believing, acting like you believe. I'm saying it's a lack of dependence upon God's power. Moving yourself aside and saying, all right, Lord, I need you. I need you to come through. And that's what Jesus challenges the dad about. That Jesus says, if I can, Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus turns it to belief. You've got to believe. Notice the Father's prayer. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Help me with the part that I'm having a hard time with. And I love that prayer. Because you and I have the same experience, there are times when we are on fire in belief. We are top shape. Oh man, I am walking on water sort of moment in faith. And then there's other times when we're on a road driving or doing something else where faith isn't so strong at that point. Or we're sick or we're hindered and we just, faith isn't really there. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And, and Jesus recognizes his prayer. And I, I would say that this is a good statement to all these faith-only movements. These movements that say, well, you know, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. Um, you, 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 God would love to heal you, but you just don't have enough faith in him. That stuff is bogus. That is totally bogus. Because that's putting the work on the person. No, I trust in the God. In God. That's who I trust in. Not the person. Not my own power. But God. And that's what the faith is. What what the faith requirement that Jesus is talking about here. And that's what the the Father says. I do believe, but I've got this bit of unbelief. 
I've seen my son toil with this from this young age. I've seen him suffer. So I, I am sorry that there's a part of me that wonders if there is any help for him. And Jesus merely speaks. Look at that. Come out and never enter again. And the Spirit comes out. And it says that everybody who saw this thought the boy was dead because he was like a corpse. But look at verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Man, that touch from Jesus. Again, we have Jesus taking somebody by the hand. Remember the blind man that was blind and Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the city and he began to see? And I challenged you at that point to let Jesus lead you, let Jesus take you by the hand so that you can see spiritually? Same thing here. That touch from Jesus. If we merely will depend upon him, we will be able to walk in faith. We'll grow in faith and he will finish that wonderful work he started in us. Maybe you tonight haven't had that work started. Maybe you've come here and you're like, oh, I'll come check out this Jesus thing or what it's all about. And, and you're wondering about this whole transfiguration. You're hearing these terms and, and the Greek terms or whatever the case is. And you know what? It's okay if you don't understand it all. I, do, I don't expect you to. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to leave with this. God has provided a Savior for our sins. See, we've fallen short. And we cannot pay that price for ourselves. But Jesus Christ died on that cross so that you and I could be reconciled to God. And if you'll merely trust in Him, you'll be forgiven. You just take that home with you tonight. Let Jesus lead you by the hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this wonderful testimony, not only that Frank gave, but that Peter, James, and John have given to us in the Gospel of Mark about Your transfiguration. Lord, we just give You praise and thanks, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.